Hello, my name is Adam Thorne and I'm Umbrella's Bespoke Editor overseeing our sponsored events and content. Welcome to the first episode in a new podcast series sponsored by Cooperate and created by Umbrella that we're calling The Messy Middle of Marketing. It will investigate not just how our customer journey has changed, but what you can do to navigate the path from awareness to purchase. So to kick us off on episode one, we're going to be discussing B2B content or more specifically, how you can use it to actually increase your sales. So over the course of the next 40 minutes or so, we will discuss why your B2B content should be different to your B2C content, why it's important to consider the buyer journey in your planning, and discussing why and how many marketers are getting things wrong in 2019. Now, I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about our guest today. Andrew Storia is the content marketing lead APAC at Hexagon PPM, which creates software that enables the design, construction, and operation of the world's largest industrial assets. Andrew is an expert in the creation and strategy of B2B specific content. And secondly, Tom Spencer is the co-founder of Melbourne-based Cooperate. Um, now, you may have noticed the Cooperate branding on Tim Burrow's Saturday Best of the Week emails. Well, Cooperate is a platform that brings together its clients' customer journeys, team activities, and marketing performance. Tom himself personally also mentors startups on how to build and sell great tech products, while also advising larger organizations on how to better harness the potential of entrepreneurs. So, Let's let's start off with with the basics here. What, what what is the difference between traditional content aimed directly at customers and more specific B two B content? If I could start with you, Andrew. Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks for that lovely intro, Adam. <laughs> um, look, specifically, what I've noticed the difference is is um, with B two B content's far more focused on building a trust relationship with the customer and. Also, it's about a buying committee, whereas with B2C, you're looking directly at sort of uh, maybe making a sell to just one person, one-to-one. B2B, you've got a whole bunch of stakeholders that you need to uh, well, convince, essentially, and that's why you sort of need a, a raft of different types of content to convince that buying committee. Mm-hmm. Is that why it's, it's so important to have kind of different types of content for sort of different sort of types of audience then? Um, potentially, yeah. I think what we normally find um, with B2B content is, is usually – You'll have a stakeholder or a champion um, that is interested in buying the product. And so you need to create content for that person specifically. But then they obviously have to go away and convince different stakeholders. They Mm -hmm. need to build requirements. And then you need sort of content for those different stakeholders and those different requirements as well. So, yeah, there's different personas and also there's just different needs. I I prefer to look at them as jobs um, that sort of need to be done within the organization Mm -hmm. and you build content towards those jobs. So could you sort of give me some examples, maybe of some sort of B2B content you've worked on and kind of the planning that went into it, you know, talking about here, like you've got to think about different audiences and who's going to be, who's going to be the decision maker, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, essentially, yeah, the way I look at it is sort of, uh, as I was saying before, the job's to be done. So up top, you've got problem identification, all right? So you need to create content that frames a problem. Um, that people in the industry or sector that your your um, your product operates in. Um, so what's the problem that they're facing? And then you sort of need to frame that problem for them. So that can be a piece of content. You know, you can usually see this in sort of white papers and research reports, you know, the state of digital transformation, blah, blah, blah. You usually see that. Um, and then your job from that point is to agitate that problem that someone takes action. And that's where you usually have that champion or the leader who's going to bring in that technology or bring in that product into the business. And so... You create content that educates them about the problem that they can then educate the stakeholders within the business about the problem. And then from there, you have a second job, which is sort of solution to that problem. 
And so that's a, another set of content that you can create. Um, and obviously this is where, without talking about your product, but you're talking about what you need to do to solve that problem. So it might be tangentially, not just your product that helps solve the problem, but say in the scope of digital transformation, um, you also need to do change management. And now your company might not, like Hexagon, we don't mm -hmm. offer a change management pro uh, product, but that is part of taking on our technology. Um, so once you've got that content sorted as well, there's a few other jobs that can be done, but you know, things like requirements building, you know, um, what kind of people, what they need to, what the customer needs to look for in suppliers. So you can educate about what a good vendor looks like. <clears throat> Spoiler alert, it's Hexagon PPM. Um, and so they, they, there's a rough of different jobs. Uh, you can also look at it, you know, some sort of get found type content, which sits outside of that realm of that buyer enablement which is just kind of uh, thought leadership, you know, um, search optimized uh, content. So what are people searching for? How can we create the best content for that keyword term? Uh, and all that is just basically driving people towards your, your buyer enablement content. Mm -hmm. um, Tom, if I could just bring you in here a little bit. Like, what's kind of your views on this? How, how do you make successful B2B content versus maybe traditional B2C content? Uh, sure. So I don't care what, um, what Andrew was saying. The way that we... the the way it works for us is often we found that B2B content is weirdly sort of more shareable or has to be more shareable than B2C content in the in the true sense. Like actually, rather than just like sharing on social, what I mean is your B2B content needs to be enable the person who is your champion to be able to go and, I guess, uh, be the salesperson in the room when you're not in the room. And so for by function, your content needs to be shareable in the form that it needs to go into when that person needs to go and do the influencing on your behalf often, mm -hmm. which means, you know, as an example, say you've built a research, you've got this amazing research paper on problem agitation, as you just described in that top, you know, top of the funnel stage, the best shareable piece of content off that might not be that individual, that whole paper, because the champion, whatever her name is, she might have to go and convince her boss, um, of the, of the virtue of trying to solve that problem that you've described. But the best form of the, that shareable bit of content might be um, that boss's peer in a keynote talking about how they've solved that problem and it needs to be pithy and something that she can just translate very easily. And that's the shareable nature of B2B content is very different mm -hmm. and you really need to think about that, to think mm -hmm. hard about the moments that you're in mm -hmm. or that your proposition will be in as the carrier of the content in those sort of in, – in that – consensus moment which is often what you're trying to get to I often think of b2b content is or b2b marketing in general is more like in b2c you're trying to get someone to sing your song right mm -hmm. you're trying to teach them about your song whereas in b2c it's more like you're trying to get a choir to sing mm -hmm. and, and you know you're trying to get people all on the same on point and all on the same message through the process so your content needs to be focused on doing that that's quite interesting what you were saying there because it feels like there's a there's a there's a paradox kind of going back to what what you said you know you want to talk about you want to help solve their problems you want mm. to give them something useful and educational but you know we see this sometimes when we put on umbrella events how, how do you um put on that content which is going to educate people which is hopefully going to drive sales but isn't going to be like a, a kind of dull sales pitch in itself how do you tread that line stop talking about your product <laughs> it's, it's simple as that. Yep. Like a, a product agnostic content is what what everyone wants now. Mm -hmm. it, it, people are, are too far down their own buyer journeys to to need you to come in and say this is the product you need to buy. Mm -hmm. That's the decision that the B two B committee is making, right? And, and they're not just looking at you; they're looking at your competitors as well. 
So the actual infiltration, well, it's probably the, the wrong choice of words, but the way to actually convince people is to be open and transparent and be like, look, this is the, we know what we're talking about and it's not our products that will solve your problem. It's us as a company that can help mm -hmm. you solve your problems. And so that's creating content, which is product agnostic and just actually looks at, you know, we are the experts. We know what we're talking about, that kind of stuff, as opposed mm -hmm. to, you know, look at these features and benefits of our product. That's what solves your problem. It's not. It's it's the information and the expertise. And there's also the, like, when people build B2B content, they think, all right, I'm selling to an, a company. And, and you always – like, it's very easy to forget that there's a person there's a person on the end of that content that you, you need to influence, you need to engage with, and that person, they have aspirations, you know, they have fears, they're trying to get something done, you know, and speak to them. Like, it's very – a lot of that B2B content basically just gets bland and doesn't engage because they're trying to talk to – I'm trying to talk to Microsoft. Microsoft isn't – you know, you're not talking to Microsoft, you're talking to – Jenny, the account manager at Microsoft in the business team. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of ridiculous because at the end of the day, usually, and I, I, I don't know, Tom, but there is usually a champion. So there's usually one person driving it. And your the job of your content is to just help bulldoze ro roadblocks for them, right? Mm -hmm. So if, well, you know, a roadblock might be, I, you know, we might not have budget. And then, you know, you can create content which shows, well, if we actually invest in this product, this is the kind of value that we can expect and they can share that content across. Like that's that's what's important as opposed to as, you know, features and benefits or, you know, we are this company and this is what we do. Mm -hmm. And how much of what you do, Andrew, is is driving content that's actually delivered by salespeople as opposed to you like seeding it at the prospect and getting it at the champion? We, we've got a lot of work to do there. So particularly in Hexagon. So we desperately need... Um, to enable our salespeople with more content. But we do have right now our platform in Salesforce allows them to access a raft of content, um, which is usually reports on the industry. So when they go in for a pitch meeting, for example, they will have you know these seven stages that they go through. And usually within that platform, it's a nice piece of software, um, which we've built in-house. They can click on it and it will uh, spit out a spiel and attached content to it as well. So they can sort of leverage that as well. But there's a lot of work to do on that space. In terms of kind of creating content, I mean, one of my kind of bugbears with a lot of B2B content is it can be very jargon heavy. It can be very dry. It can be very hard to read. And I often think that often the people that are making a decision as to whether to take on a particular product may not necessarily be the techies. They may not necessarily understand all the nuances. And so I find a lot of this content misses the mark and i'm sure we've all seen um websites for companies where you read it and you don't have the faintest idea what they're on about because it's kind of so jargon heavy and so kind of show-offy how how important therefore is it to kind of write get to get the right tone and to understand who you're targeting well i think one of the biggest problems i've noticed throughout b2b mm -hmm. is that people aren't taking notice of digital body language mm -hmm. and what it is that people actually engage with and i think one of the problems i find is that Quite often in business to business, what the marketing team is operating under is business to backpats. Mm -hmm. And so they will submit a piece of content and then the approver will be like, oh, great job there, Karen. You've done really well. But <laughs> instead of actually looking at what the content and the experience that the user is having with that content. So that's sort of implementing tools like Hotjar. So when you publish it on the, the website, how far are people scrolling down the content? Where are they clicking on the content? What is the action that people want to take? More importantly, you know, what is the Google Analytics behind it? So how long are they spending time on page? Are they clicking on other pages? Are they? Can you keep them on your website? Mm -hmm. 
And that's far more indicative of whether people are being engaged by the content as opposed to having an approver say yes or no to internally, this is good content or bad content. And that's when you can get away from jargon, right? So if you're too jargon heavy or people aren't engaging with it, they'll bounce off straight away. So you know immediately that that content's Mm -hmm. not engaging and it's not actually doing the job, as we were saying earlier, Mm -hmm. for, for what that person needs to do specifically at that point in time. There are, like, if you're selling to technical buyers, there is a certain degree that you need to go into, though, in that space. Mm -hmm. And, pardon me, but it's very easy for companies to basically um, substitute, you know, technical competence and signaling that you have credentials for the technical buyer in their space, as opposed to what they normally do, which is using their own jargon, nonsense, garbage in their content. You're really Mm -hmm. like, that makes no sense. No one knows what that is. Like, yeah. yeah, that's that would be the key distinction. Is like if you're putting in like acronyms that only you guys use, and obviously you're, yeah. you're screwing it up. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right, Tom. So that's again identifying at what stage that technical user comes into the the buying journey, and then offering them that content. Here's yeah. your tech rep sheet, um, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and unless you sell directly to technical buyers, yeah, which isn't course. as yeah, yeah. common. Um, but usually, any you know, even if you're telling selling to non technical buyers, they still have their industry language and that's different from the jargon mm-hmm. stuff it's actually quite interesting because at hexagon we're trying to move away from that because we're traditionally an engineering software company mm-hmm. who has sold directly to engineers so that <clears throat> our sales approach was we are the number one you know tech masterminds we understand engineering better than anyone else but now we're actually trying to elevate that conversation outside of the end user and, and looking at the various stakeholders who actually make purchasing decisions. So, you know, your directors, your program directors, your construction managers, all that kind of stuff. So it's actually been a, a challenge because we've got to step away from that technical content, which mm-hmm. is what we traditionally made, and starting to sort of elevate the conversation outside to business value. And, and that's sort of been an education piece internally as well. Mm-hmm. When you're kind of identifying who your kind of different sort of um, segments are, who your different audiences are, how, how do you work that out and how granular kind of should you go? How, how sort of deep should you dive when you're thinking, I'm, I'm going to look at this specific audience? Um, that's a great question. Uh, at the moment, I used to want to go into really, really detailed sort of, as long as you can segment within your CRM, so within your Pardo or your Mark, um, Marketo, you can sort of start splicing out different types of digital body language, which is how people sort of interact with your various types of content in your website. Um, as long as you have lists that you can sort of say, so this may be our champion list, like these are what we identify as champions and the actions that they take. And these are, say, other people within the buying committee, you know, maybe a, a decision maker or an influencer to that decision maker. That that's probably the best starting place. You can go as granular as you like. I mean, personalization is coming with content marketing, um, but I, I always find that people try to do too much too early in terms of segmenting their audience. And so probably starting out um, nice and broad and nice and general and then looking at the digital body language that people take and saying, okay, so we can create commonalities between these types of people. Let's split them out and say these are champion A, champion mm-hmm. B, and then start testing different types of content to those audiences from that point. Mm-hmm. Could you give us some, or maybe both of you, could you give us some examples of um, B2B um, content marketing you've seen done really well, whether or not you could name those companies? Like Some examples of kind of what the problem was, how that content came about, and kind of what the end result was. Tom, do you have any? Well, all of my favorites come from, like, in the B2B space, they usually come from the tech industry. Um, great uh, top of the funnel content I really love is from um, 
the podcast series from Andreessen Horowitz. They're, they have a tech podcast that they do and it's a great example of very high investment at deal flow because deal flow is everything in in that area of finance and so it's like trust and also placement of the brand sort of top level content and they and they invest very heavily in that um so that's my favorite in terms of actually what it does for their brand and sort of pulling pulling deals through and attracting the right kind of customer in their case Mm -hmm. which is is companies to them my actual personal favorites are from the b2c space actually in terms of you know building um credibility so i started my career in the wine industry and the wine industry has a really heavy overweight in content um and penfolds uh released this book and they've consistently done it called the rewards of patience which is like the backstory history context of grange and it's a great piece of content very long form it's like it's a proper book written by andrew callard i believe his name is the wine like a wine historian um and it just builds builds credibility over time within within the the narrative behind the brand um that's the best kind of content marketing i think across across any context b2c b2b yeah i think um b2b i've got to give a shout out to firebrand and aquin uh, the recruitment companies they invented the salary guide um uh, robert half was probably there at the same time as well but you know the idea of you know gathering in from your knowledge and your market gathering in and saying look over the course of the market here are sort of what salaries you can expect to pay as an employer and also as an employee what you can sort of fish for in the market based on your job title and then just sort of you know filtrating that content out it turned into pr pieces for them it turned into all these different types of things and now you see ubiquitously every recruitment company has a salary guide and you know because it's such a powerful piece of content and it I've always loved um, Firebrand and Aquin. I think they're some of the best digital marketers out there. Um, so, you know, very much sign up to them. They've got a really distinct funnel as well. So once you sort of get a salary guide off them, they will start pitching you events. And once they get, you know, recruiters get you in a room, you're in big trouble. You're about to buy something. I'll tell you that for free. So it's, yeah, I think that's really good. And just the other day, I can't actually remember the name of the brand. I think it's Podowski Group, but I was looking at how you can structure a, a content um, marketing team uh, as a global function with demand generation. And they did this really excellent job of splitting out. They had this big long-form content of how you build revenue marketing functions within a business. And then they split it out by all the distinct functions. So I could see immediately because I downloaded the digital and content marketing um, structure that they could segment me then and say, this is a content marketer who probably has influence in because they were a revenue marketing consultancy. So he would probably have influence in sort of you know how the, how to build and structure this team, and then we could we could. I'm waiting for their. I only did this three days ago, so I'm waiting for their next contact with me and see what they fished to me next. But I thought it was, yeah, I tipped my cap to them. That was that. Hopefully, they've got a, a backup plan after getting me into that audience segment. But yeah, how I'm interested in your opinion on this, Andrew. Like, how important do you think it will be around uh, for content marketers in the B2B space to have that personalization, you know, in, approach? Just so kind of things being programmatic and you let, you know, your CRM and the data that you have on the prospect from, you know, Dardenize or whatever it is you use enriched and then that de- denotes the path? Or do you think it's always, there's always going to be the art side of the equation saying, look, I've got a flow where I, a customer journey, I want to put this prospect through, I think I know best. Yeah. I mean, two things on that. One is production. I, th- I think I've said this to you a thousand times, Tom production's always going to be the bottleneck. If you want to start personalizing journeys, that means you've got to write personalized journeys for every single person. So if you, you know, you, at the top of the page, you can have, hey, Andrew, welcome back. 
Um, but someone's got to write, hey, Andrew, welcome back, and then give that personalized message. And so you're starting to look at, well, how do you resource for that? That becomes a whole issue. And secondly, I mean, this is more anecdotally, and I, I haven't seen you know data uh, in my own experience of personalized content and sort of what impact that has in terms of engagement. But from my own habits, I, I don't see myself returning too much to various sites unless they're very specific to my job. And how I would feel personally if someone was like, we've created this personalized piece of content, you know, now we're going to pitch. Say, for example, I always go back to Mozblog when I'm thinking about SEO. If they started to specifically cater their website or their landing pages to start selling me their tool, uh, every time I jumped on that blog, that would probably become frustrating for me because I'm, I'm in an informational zone with them. So I'm sort of, I think the jury's still out. Eventually, we're probably going to have to go down that road um, in creating, you know, a tailored experience to what people are looking for. Mm. Um, but we need to sort of get better, first of all, at understanding and recognizing digital, digital body language in B2B, which is what people just aren't doing. Just to road back a little bit there, we were talking about kind of great examples. How how do you kind of come up with great ideas? Because it's obviously, it's maybe it's almost impossible to, to, to define, but how does that initial thing happen? Because you could get the best writer, you could get the best, you know, podcast equipment, whatever. If that initial idea is not on the mark, it's gonna it's gonna fall apart. What kind of tools and tips and tricks can you can you do to know that you what you're going to invest in is going to kind of is going to resonate with your audience? Yeah, definitely. Um, all good ideas stem from the shower um, with me. <laughs> um, no, I, I first of all, I always look at search volume, right? Even if you're not creating a search optimized piece of content for the website. Get an idea of what people are actually looking for online mm -hmm. and it will change the way you think about your content. So look at Google Trends. You know, Jump on your keyword research tool. If you don't have one, get a keyword research tool. Um, jump on like something like um, Ahrefs, right? Ahrefs, I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, but jumping on their site explorer and look at your competitors' websites, look at um, thought leadership websites and see what their top ranking pages are. And that will give you a really good insight into what your audience is actually looking for on their journeys and what kind of information they need to make decisions. And from there, you're hedging your bets immediately because you go, well, I know this is what my audience specifically is looking for. Then from there, it's trying to change things up, um, taking a look at, and this is where it becomes art more than science, is say, for example, I think webinars are dead. Nobody wants to be spoken to for 45 minutes, right? Um, I think this sort of format, podcasting, is probably the replacement for the webinar. Other than people listening to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, um, yeah, like I think podcasts are sort of more engaging in the sense that you're listening to people converse. I listen to podcasts on the train. I listen to them at home. I listen to them while I'm playing video games. It, they're just in my brain constantly, whereas I don't sort of put on a webinar and then zone out because it's not the same sort of that's very much a lecturer lecturing to you and you've kind of got to pay attention. Whereas when someone's talking, I don't know, we're sort of conditioned to just tune in. So that's sort of experimenting with the mix and the format. Um, and, and we're trying that now at Hexagon. And, you know, I've sort of pushed my chips in on that, on recording podcasts, and we'll see how that shakes out. Um, but I think, yeah, ultimately, you, you've just got to look at engagement as well. So like how, how much are people downloading this asset? Are they engaging with it? That kind of stuff. And then just what, what can we do differently? Mm -hmm. it's interesting you said that because my, my kind of um sort of theory of webinars is it feels quite out of date because in order to get the best out of it you've got to listen live and often that will happen during the day it's not a convenient time and obviously with a podcast you like you say you listen to it on the on the train or on the bus or what have you 
So talking of different formats here, you know, maybe 10 years ago, the format was a blog post and that kind of was your format. Now, obviously, there's so many more avenues. Again, you've got you've got webinars, you've got podcasts, video is not as expensive as it used to be. You've got a kind of um, huge interest that seems to come in the last few years on kind of long form content, but people are now more willing to engage with things. How do you know what what's kind of the right um, format for the, for the kind of content that you want to put on? How do you make that decision? I think it's about creating a story or an idea around these jobs that we were talking about earlier and then creating it, uh, spreading it out across all different formats. So rather than looking at a white paper and saying that is a PDF asset that we're going to use, it's like, well, we've got a white paper here which discusses a topic. That's a gate that gets uh, people into our ecosystem. But how can we create a, a webinar or a podcast off the back of that? What videos can we use to promote that white paper? It's about creating a suite of a, a healthy mix of content um, based off the same idea, essentially, because you want to tell that story. And when you break out into the jobs that people need done, you can also sort of start aligning the different formats of content as well. So video may be used to promote um, an asset like a white paper. Um, and then once they've downloaded that white paper, what are we doing next? Maybe we're feeding them a webinar. Maybe we're feeding them a blog post. So it's kind of, you've kind of got to create everything. Mm-hmm. We think about it in terms of, you know, and this is how we work with our with our customers as well. Is basically, when you map out a customer journey, you're you're designing and optimizing your content into that customer journey, and there are specific jobs that that content needs to do in the context of the customer's need state at any one time, and that should denote both the idea you have and the form that it takes and how it's delivered. Um, so it shouldn't be, let's just have a crack at you know, a webinar because I love them and Andrew hates them kind of thing. <laughs> it should be, there should be a, a strategic uh, view on the form and the job that you need that content to do at that moment relative to the need state that the cons- customer have has and the action you want them to take. And that should dictate everything around content in our opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, just building off what Tom was saying is sort of when you look at something like a webinar or a podcast, that's quite a high-level commitment as well. And you need to be really specific in, in sort of how long people are engaging with that form of content. But if they're willing to make that kind of commitment, then you can sort of assess that they may be, you know, quite far down a, a journey or they're getting quite into the business end of the journey. So if you're doing a webinar or a podcast, it probably should be more sort of solution-focused. Um, so again, that's sort of again what Tom was saying, aligning aligning that to the journey and the job that needs to be done, yeah. and also reducing your expectation. So a lot of the time, people will have too high expectations of what a, an individual piece mm-hmm. of content can achieve in mm-hmm. any moment. Hence, why if you break it up, you can say, "Look, my expectation of this uh, hosted event that I might do, which is classic in the software industry, um, most software companies will run their own hosted events, and then that creates content that you will seed and and leverage." Is your expectation shouldn't be someone comes to my hosted event on a you know problem agitation kind of stage of their customer journey. Don't expect them to get the credit card out then and there, right? Whereas a lot of people have that expectation. They're like, well, I'm producing this piece of content and I'm going to jam every single component CTA I can into this for every single action that that's possible. Um, as another kind of thing to consider. Um, so moving forward from that a little bit, then. 
would what's the kind of pros and cons for creating this content in-house versus getting a sort of supposed expert in because kind of looking at it from the outside in i'd say obviously you, you're the experts at your audience and you know your topic better than any outsider could do but obviously you may not necessarily be as good a writer or be as good as you know um producer or whatever how do you find that balance in terms of what you do in-house and what maybe you outsource uh well it comes down to resources really mm. uh, but again, coming back to my old chestnut, production's always the bottleneck. So you can have all of these ideas, but, you know, to put to put a podcast together, that's four to six weeks work and it's actually hurting cats, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got to get people in the same room. You know, you guys had difficulty getting me here, right? <laughs> so, you know, these are the issues that you face. But when you're talking about outsourcing, I think you do know your your product the best you do know your stories the best you do know your audience the best which means you should be able to put together a brief the best and i think that's where quite often and i find this talking to agencies i get a lot of feedback which is like wow this is a really comprehensive brief and it's like good because i need you to do a good job of creating this content so say for example when you're outsourcing writing um when i put together a brief you know i give a very specific table of contents I give an overview of the keywords that we're targeting, um, you know, the expectation of how many times do I need you to use certain keywords and sort of what are the semantic keywords that are related to that. And it takes me about two, two and a half hours to put together the brief. But when I get the content back, it's always to a level of acceptance in the first round. There's very rarely a need for a feedback round because, you know, you put in the effort up front. Sure, it takes a lot more time than what you're expecting, but in the back end, you're not wasting time on feedback rounds. So, when you're outsourcing, it just means you've got to put in a lot of effort in briefing. Um, and then if you've got money, hire someone. Yeah, well, and our, my opinion on that is outsourcing around content is probably not the best idea in the B2B space because your content is effectively the assets that you own. Mm-hmm. Like they're part, of, they're part of your product in the end, mm-hmm. or they should be. They should be high quality enough to be considered that. And so that's something you need to own. Like you need to own that in, internally as a muscle that you need to develop. Um, but then how you use that content should be uh, taken over by the experts. And generally, we rely on agencies to do that. So you have your search agencies optimizing delivery of your optimal target customer at that point into the content that you have created, you know, creative agencies, building landing pages, all that sort of stuff. I, I think you can outsource around your content, but not the actual creation is my, is my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It depends how precious you are about it. Um, I can be quite precious about my content. Um, I always find, say, for example, uh, recently I engaged an agency to help me create what I described as atomizing a piece of content that I'd created with the Atom Hammer. So I submitted to them an ebook that I'd written, which was about 8,000 words. And I said, come back to me with what you think we can do with this content. And they came back with a pitch for a couple of infographics, that kind of stuff. So that sort of took the pressure off. Okay, well, now... Once they pitch these in, here are the jobs that those assets can do for us in our CRM and it scaled up production really quickly. Whereas if I'd taken on the production of those assets and used our internal resources, we'd probably still be waiting for those assets to be delivered back. Yeah. And I think also it's it's good to define like what we're, what we're talking about in that context. So content uh, as it relates to your customer journey and how someone will engage with that and then move to the next stage in the journey is very action-oriented content. And that's very different to say engaging an agency to build you a trade mag on an ongoing basis, which is more of a PR kind of thing, in my opinion. It's still content marketing, but if you're building, you know, um, an ongoing content hub that's like top of the funnel, like just general content of general interest that's trying to build an audience that you would then seed your action-oriented content into, 
then that's probably a different conversation. You probably would need to get experts, you know, engaging like we're doing with Mumbrella at the moment, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So it's a different type of content in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and just finally, it feels that um, it, there's so much content out now, both B2C um, and B2B. It feels like there's a lot of noise. And, you know, if everyone's putting out content and everyone's being bombarded with content, how do you make yourself stand out? Is it just by making your content better or is it also how you amplify it? And if so, how much money should you put behind it? How much of it should you let kind of organically catch catch wind and how much of it should you be kind of putting money in to push that out? Um, $2,000. No, I, <laughs> I, uh, this is tricky. Yeah, there is so much content out there, but guess what? 90% of it isn't good. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say good, I mean it's not optimized for search yep. engines. It's got really ill-defined CTAs. People aren't doing conversion rate optimization. So there's opportunity for people who want to get savvy about it, mm-hmm. right? So you need to create a bunch of content which is aligned to these jobs that Tom and I and the journeys that Tom and I have been crapping on about, but looking specifically at, okay, well, if if this topic is, you know, really hotly contested on Google and has a lot of search volume, how are we going to create content that comes over the top or are there other opportunities for us? And, for, you know, if you're creating PDF assets, what gives our, our asset, um, you know, what gives our asset uh, like a... I've lost the word for it. What gives it an edge? Mm -hmm. Um, And is that, and how do we tie that to a metric? So is that purely downloads or is it, you know, can we get some piece of software or tool? And if someone knows of one right now that lets you engage with how people are looking at PDFs, Mm -hmm. um, you know, figure out what it is that they're doing and then how can you optimize around that experience? And I think this is really, if you want to get an edge in content marketing, you need to start thinking about the customer experience a lot more. Um, and also looking at, yeah, look, there might be a level of investment. And I would say, at a guess, let's just say 25 grand a half, right? So you're looking at about 50 grand a year. You can do a lot with that mm-hmm. kind of money, a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, just to build on that, like no one, no one ever said um, that they wanted like a crap meal from a restaurant, right? Like quality is never going to go away as like the core plank mm-hmm. of of any anything you do really in the context of marketing and it's particularly true with content where you're demanding more attention than you usually do out of someone um so that's the first point however i would say you know ever there is a lot of content around but we all have our niche kind of we all have our niche interest areas i think you probably got more air cover than you than you think particularly if you're targeting a specific industry with a specific message on a specific vertical and a specific persona. If you get that right, then you really speak to someone, you know, Deborah from accounts, whatever it is, and um, and you can probably get more time than you think if it's quality. Um, I know we all see, you know, the garbage stream that comes through our LinkedIn feeds every day and you're like, oh, who is reading all this crap? But most of the time, you know, you'll just ignore stuff until mm-hmm. it speaks to you and that's the whole idea, right? Mm-hmm. So... Finally, how effective can good content marketing and good B2B content be? Should we? Should you just view this as a kind of awareness brand building exercise or can this directly lead to sales? Like how, how useful can it be as part of your kind of marketing mix? You got to look at it as though it's influencing a sale mm-hmm. because it doesn't directly translate into a sale. Nothing really does. And, that, and this is the problem with attribution and we could probably speak about that for years. But ultimately, what content does is it gives you an idea of, first of all, how your pe- what, what is your buyer journey? What are the stages that people have? So if you've got assets aligned to that, and what are the gaps in that journey as you speak to more and more customers? And so as you go along, you know, I think there's heaps of research out there that says, you know, people need like 13 to 20 touches before they're interested in making a purchase decision. 
So, you know, how much of that journey, how many of those touch points are related to content? And then from there, you can come away with a consensus within your organization as to how many of these touch points are related to content and is that influencing the sale? And once you can tick the box and say yes, then you can start looking at, well, the percentage of revenue that we've won off the back of content influencing that person. So then you can have a conversation about, well, you know, content's having this level of influence on revenue. Let's go out there and see what else we can do. What other cool ideas do we have to sort of help hasten that journey along? It's definitely more uh, more revenue attributable than um, than standard content that you might produce as part of your marketing mix, I think, in, in B2B. Um, and it depends on what you consider. So we consider internally at, at Cooperate, we consider all of those moments, not just, you know, top of the funnel content we produce, but also, you know, when they're actively in a deal um, and the content that they're consuming from the marketing team as as relevant, you know, f- as relevant content marketing pieces, as well as, you know, our tech due diligence documentation that we have to go through when we get into the CIO, for example. So all of those are marketing, content marketing moments that you can influence and control, even though some people would call it sales enablement at that point. Mm. Um, so that that's the first point I'd make. Mm. Um, and then I think you can get smarter about how you actually me- benchmark and measure your content uh, in, in those moments as well. Mm. So I think there's a lot of work as an industry that content marketing people need to do around that. Mark Roberge is, um, uh, is the lecturer at Harvard business school but he was the former CRO of HubSpot he's got a great talk specifically about this about building your uh, revenue-based SLA from marketing into into the sales organization typically Mm -hmm. around all right who am I delivering on what basis what kind of CTAs or engagements am I getting out of my content and then putting a dollar figure on that and optimizing the content you push into each of those moments for that dollar figure Mm -hmm. Um, so there's some good work out there around that that kind of gives you more of a leading indicator sense of right or how close is this bit of content to that bit of revenue that I know the sales team is chasing right now, for example. Yeah, like I've had a lot of success throughout my career when we first start content marketing and capturing low-hanging fruit. So people who are actually quite advanced in their buyer journey stage and then I'll drop a piece of content, which I don't think is related to, you know, solution canvassing or any of the jobs that we've been talking about, but then they enter a deal straight away. And, and quite often I use that as a benchmark. So say whatever the revenue is associated with that deal that's created off the back of that content as first touch, I'll then use that as a piece to go around the business and say, look, here's the opportunity. So whatever the revenue is attributed to that piece of content, I'll be like, look, this is just one piece of content which has brought in a deal like this for our business. Let's start optimizing around that. And then you can really start getting some headwind behind you and people can start getting excited about content marketing. Once you've got that little number as well, you can start splitting that out however you want. You can almost say, look, this is how much an email is worth to us in the business. Mm-hmm. Right? And once you can start saying, well, this is how much an email is worth to us potentially, then that, that can, you can optimize around cost per lead. You can optimize around click-through rates and all that kind of stuff. How much are we willing to spend on Facebook, LinkedIn, all these different channels because this is ultimately the kind of revenue we can expect out of it. Well, that's unfortunately um, all we've got time for. However, there will be more episodes in this series coming very soon. If you want to find out more about them and access all the released episodes in the series so far, then visit mumbrella.com.au slash the messy middle of marketing. That's mumbrella.com.au slash the messy middle of marketing. But for now, I'd like to say a very big thank you to our guests, Andrew and Tom. Thank you very much, guys. (laughs) 